Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from Scripture will inspire and encourage you. In this episode, we conclude our overview of the way Scripture treats the concept of hell. We address some big and weighty topics, including universalism, the current state of Sheol, and heaven as a real place. We will talk about the rapture, studying in particular the book of 1 Thessalonians, in which the Apostle Paul tells the church about what is coming and how to be prepared for it. We conclude with a discussion on the will of God and how all these things work toward an invitation to participate in God's deep desire for us. Well, we have this uh, uh, series on prophetic questions, so I'm going to start with answering these questions. The first question has to do with universalism. Why, why do we suddenly we hear about universalism a lot? I think the reason is because of Rob Bell's book, uh, Love Wins. So I'll talk a little bit about that book. Uh, it, it is actually... How many people have actually read the book in here? Anybody? One? Well, I, I, the book actually is mostly the same kind of stuff I've been talking to you about. It has the same basic analysis about Sheol and Hades and Gehenna and so forth and basically makes the point that the uh, sort of the mythology about hell that's been handed down to us is actually not biblical. And, and it largely follows C.S. Lewis's concept about hell in The Great Divorce. How many people have read Great Divorce? Quite a few of you. Uh, But uh, he comes up with a conclusion I would say is not really consistent with his study. And I don't know, this is not that all that unusual for us as humans. But in my view, he marches along with this analysis and it basically says then instead of following the logical conclusion of his analysis that uh, you've got you've got all this information in the Bible that tells you sin is a really catastrophic thing to do and has immense negative consequences, uh, but the negative consequences are more more immediate and uh, more um, let's call it universal than you might think. It's not sort of like you suddenly you know, get, become a Christian and then sin doesn't have consequences anymore. It still has consequences. Instead of coming up with that conclusion, he comes up with the conclusion that, well, apparently since what we were told was wrong, we can kind of believe whatever we want to. And what we'll believe is that God is a permissive parent and a you know, rich daddy that will give us a trust fund and just make everything okay. And it's, it's actually quite bizarre in my view. But I think he holds a lot of sway over it. And I'm, my opinion is that what he's doing is uh, what is the tendency of us as humans to do. And we, we all do it. I think it's one of the things that uh, is like the most important thing for, not the most important thing. One of the most important things we can do as believers in renewing our mind is really focus on the truth and following who God is and who He says He is. What we tend to do is fit God into our world. We fit God into our culture. In our culture, the spirit of our age is narcissism, which means everything's about me. And the spirit of our age is uh, uh, permissiveness, that somehow consequences shouldn't have sins. 
uh, uh, I'm sorry, sins shouldn't have consequences. I'll have to think about the other way. So, and we actually have large political movements based on that. I should be able to do, uh, you know, I should be able to have promiscuous sex and not have any negative consequences. And it's the government's responsibility to come up with a vaccine to make the consequences go away. Uh, so this is, this is how Paul says it. And, and he's talking here in, in the book of Romans, the wrath of God is contrasted with the righteousness of God. And he's writing to believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So this is largely a book that applies to everybody. Uh, the wrath of God's revealed uh, from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. And I just think uh, that based on what I read in uh, Love Wins and what uh, just talking to Dr. Anderson, who's actually made an extensive study of the subject, uh, he told me that basically the gist of this uh, body of work is we don't want to believe in a God who would do something bad to an, another person. You know, God needs to make everything all better. And I just think that people don't like the, a righteous God. You know, just sort of like there, there's a movement to try to make it where they'll throw you in jail, leave for spanking your kids. You know, that people don't like righteousness. And they're just trying to make it go away and fitting it in with our culture. And this is one of the things. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to uh, maintain uh, the truth apart from the culture and uh, not and not have a spirit of just like uh, obstinance. Uh, but as you might expect, if you follow the same passage and go on, there's a the the wrath of God actually has a three part. Uh, Step and it says, uh, and so therefore he gave them over. He gave them over to their lusts. So this is the first. If we want to sin, we'll go through this same progression. If we if we have a an appetite and we begin to feed it, the God God initially will hold us back. I mean, many times when you I've and I've experienced this in my life. I had an appetite and I started down the path of I think I'm gonna. I'm going to uh, satisfy this appetite. and just got the door slammed in my face. But if I persisted, I'm sure God would have finally said, okay, and that would have been his wrath. He turns us over. And first he turns us over to our lust, and then he turns us over to this passion, uh, which I would, I would say is an addiction. And then we have a debased mind, and he says that... Uh, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. The men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful. Now, this is actually, uh, in the Greek culture, this was like everyday occurrence. It was, uh, as a matter of fact, they had one, one uh, uh, culture. The Spartans actually had homosexuality as a... As a um, uh, official government policy. It was it was when a boy turned eight years old, he went into the barracks, and the first thing they would start doing is uh, teaching him homosexuality. So they believed it would help them on their long marches, not you know uh, long for home sort of thing. 
But Paul says, look, this is not natural and this is part of the, the progression. Well, you know, not surprisingly, Rob Bell now has come out and said that a homosexual marriage is okay. The ship has sailed, he said, and we just need to get behind them and, and uh, uh, you know, love them. They're, they, they're, they're passionate for Jesus too, which to me is completely consistent with uh, where he's coming from. Now, interestingly enough, I would say uh, the great divorce, and C.S. Lewis, to me, is just a great hero of the faith. I, I, I don't think any single author has had a more positive influence on me than C.S. Lewis. And at the end of the great divorce, he says, um, "There's well, see, let me, let me, I've got to set the stage because most of you haven't read this. Uh, in the great divorce, there is a, a place called the Gray City, and the gray city is where everybody goes initially, and there's this bus. You can get on the bus and go to the and go to what amounts to heaven. And uh, the you're a ghost when you go to this gray city. And when you go to heaven, you can talk to these uh, real giants that are there. And what they're encouraging you to do is stop being a ghost and be real, and come on into heaven. And so there's this kind of dialogue that goes on, and that's most of this book is about having a heavenly mindset or a hellish mindset, and it's just a it's just a story. But the the primary um, heavenly figure that's talking to this guy who turns out to be having a dream in the book is George MacDonald. George MacDonald was a, a guy that had an immense influence on uh, C.S. Lewis. He was Scottish, so. Uh, so he's speaking right at the end of the book. He says, um, uh, In your own book, sir, said I, you are a universalist. You talked as if all men would be saved, and St. Paul too. And of course, now I'm going to, this is Scottish, so he, he, he answers back, Ye can know nothing of the end of all things, or nothing expressible in those terms. It may be, as the Lord said to the Lady Julian, that all will be well, and all will be well. And all manner of things will be well, but it's all ill talking of such questions. Because they're too terrible, sir? No, because all answers deceive. If you put the question from within time and are asking about possibilities, the answer is certain. The choice of ways is before you. Neither is closed. Any man may choose eternal death. Those who choose it will have it. But if ye are trying to leap on into eternity, if ye are trying to see the final state of all things as it will be, for so ye must speak, when there are no more possibilities left but only the real, then ye ask what cannot be answered to mortal ears. So this is how C.S. Lewis kind of concluded. And I find it kind of fascinating that Rob Bell, uh, although he followed this, didn't follow the conclusion, where basically... C.S. Lewis comes up and says, people are going to get what they want at the end of the day. And if you want, if you want death, you're going to get it. So I, I, think, I think that's what's going on with this deal. Uh, second question is, is Abraham's bosom still inhabited? So we talked about Sheol having these two compartments. We've got Hades and Abraham's bosom. Are people still in there? Of course, I have no idea whether anybody's in there or not. But I think, I think what we can say 
is that uh, Thessalonians is clear that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. Uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus went there. The thief went there. So it must have still been inhabited after Jesus died, at least for one day. Uh, So whether it is that where Jesus is in heaven is also this paradise or Abraham's bosom or I I don't know. But I don't think it really matters because we're in the presence of the Lord. And, and I think that's the key thing. Uh, what, we, what I think we can uh, ascertain is that there's still people in Hades because uh, the way it talks about Revelation, that it's emptied. As a matter of fact, it says something real fascinating. If anybody has any idea about this, I'd love to hear it. It says in Revelation, Hades will give up its dead. And then there's a bunch of dead that come from another place. Anybody remember what it says? The sea. And I wonder, what in the world is that? I have no idea. I've, I've scratched my head over that numerous times. I can't even come up with anything. So uh, anyway, there's, there's still apparent that still seems to be inhabited. But I, th- I think that irrespective of whether that's still part of it or not, it's either overlaps with where Jesus is or, G- or, uh, or uh, you know, it's been, it's been uh, emptied. And either way, we go to be at the presence of the Lord. The third question I thought was real interesting. What do you think about the book Heaven is for Real? So this is a personal opinion I get to express because obviously Scripture is not going to talk about that book. But uh, I I believe it. And I'll tell you why. You know, you what's that? Oh, Heaven is for Real. Sorry, it's a book about a a four-year-old boy that uh, died and came back to life. And then, um, you know, a year later they're driving by the hospital and the parents say something about him being in the hospital and the little kid's doing something. He says, yeah, that's where the angel picked me up. And he goes on as if they all like, what? So over the next six months or so, uh, they, he, what, what, what comes out is this whole uh, experience of this vision he had, or this experience he had, I guess, of, of actually going to heaven while he was, while he was dead. Uh, and... Uh, it's it's really fascinating, but the reason I buy it is because his dad, or the key thing, the key it rings true to me. But the key thing is, the dad said, asked him, "What did you do while you were there?" And the little boy says, "Well, Jesus gave me some work to do. That was the best part." Now, have you ever heard anybody say that there's work in heaven and that would be the best part? Have you ever heard that? I had already come to see in the new earth, which we will cover that it's going to be a very active, working, striving place, which is nothing like... I mean, the picture we're always painted of heaven is this awful Alzheimer's clinic. <laughs> you know, bad hymns and drooling people. You know, there's nothing left to learn. I already know everything. There's nothing to do. I'm just floating around. You know, it's just terrible. Who would want to go to that place? The only reason anybody would want to go there is because they don't want to live in a pizza oven. You know, that's the historical kind of uh, deal. But that's not what the new earth is going to be like. It's going to be a rocking, cool place. And uh, so we'll, we'll go over that too, uh, maybe next week. Uh, anyway, so I just say, well, no, that, he wouldn't have gotten that from anywhere. Even Awana's doesn't teach that. <laughs> So anyway, so now we'll go into today, which we're going to talk about the rapture. So uh, we've already had a number of raptures. 
Can you name them? Elijah was raptured. He was. How did his happen? Chariots of fire. Chariots of fire. Okay, very good. What else? At least two more. Enoch. Enoch. How do you know Enoch was raptured? He was taken up. Hebrews 11. God, uh, he pleased God and God just took him. He didn't see death, it says in Hebrews 11. Okay, one more. Who? Christ. Jesus, yeah. His rapture was really cool because they were all standing there and he's talking to them all of a sudden. Really neat. And, uh, no, what kind of a spiritual elevator sort of thing. So, at least three raptures. Anybody think of another one? Those are the only three I know of. So we've had three, and there's more coming. And I'm going to uh, suggest at least three more. At least three more. And there may be way more than that. Who knows? But uh, let's first talk about the rapture we're most familiar with. Now, I did something interesting you might find interesting. I googled rapture. And, you know, on the front page usually tells you kind of what most of the uh, rap traffic. Anybody guess kind of what, what came up? It, it was mostly hate mail. I mean, it was like, uh, you know, there can't be a rapture or whatever. And so this must be really important because I remember this uh, story about this uh, Russian girl during the communist era. And she, was, she came to faith one day in class as a little girl looking out the window and it was snowing. And she thought, and her thinking process was, uh, if God wasn't real, they wouldn't talk about him all the time. And, that's, and when, you, when you have somebody that really reacts in a, in a real exaggerated way to something, uh, you, know, you know there's something to it. Have you ever noticed that? There's no movements afoot to try to get people to stop talking about the Grinch. Right? We're poisoning these children's minds. There's really no Grinch. But there's a lot of movements to kind of stop talking to children about God. It's because He's real. So I think, I think this is really an important uh, topic. And I'm going to go through I, what I, th- I think is just a compelling case for uh, the rapture. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to do something that uh, I recommend you do as part of your kind of ongoing Bible study. I'm just going to read this book. I'll comment as we go. Oftentimes, it's just important to see the whole thing as a whole. Just read it like it was a letter written to you. Now, Thessalonica is a city in Macedonia. So these are Greeks. You've got the Jewish Paul writing to the Greek Thessalonians. Um, let's see. I'm reading from the New King James, if you have a, if you have a computer and can switch versions. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for for you all. He was southern, Paul. (laughs) Making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us. 
and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. That's the Greek area around. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, who He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay. So what are these people? What are they like? And what are they doing? They're believers. What kind of believers? Strong believers, right? What's going on in their arena here, in their area? Everybody's talking about them. Why? Their faith is so strong. And what's happening circumstantially? Look at verse 6. What's happening circumstantially? Lots of affliction going on. This is, this is when our opportunity for witness is the greatest. When there's lots of affliction and we don't waver. And because of this, Paul's saying, hey, I don't even need to talk anymore. I mean, you guys are doing such an awesome job. And what are they doing? Look at number, verse 10. What are they doing? Waiting to be rescued by Jesus from heaven. Okay, you get, you get the setup. Massive affliction. They're waiting to be rescued. Chapter 2, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, that's when they were thrown in jail, you know, had the Philippian jailer thing. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach the gospel of God also. They, Paul, his habit was to work as a tent maker to make his own living instead of asking for money. Verse 10, your witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, become imitators, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. Now, what kind of person's in the, in the uh, church in Judea? Jew or Gentile? Jews, okay? So you Gentiles here in Thessalonica are becoming just like doing, following the same path the Jews did in Judea. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. 
Okay, you follow that? So what's happening? Who's persecuting the Thessalonians? Their their own countrymen, the Greeks. Who is persecuting the Jewish believers? The fellow Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus? What is Paul looking forward to when he gets to heaven? To be with them. And why? So he can Yeah. So he can say, Yeah! I mean, look, here, here's something. I'm, I'm uh, involved in a school. And here's a secret we've learned. If you want, if you want parents to come, what, you know what you do? You put the kids on stage. They, parents will sit for an hour and a half so they can see their children for two seconds get up on stage. Now, they may leave right after the children get on stage. Uh, but that, that's... That's what we, we love to see our kids elevated. Well, this, Paul's just a, he's a father. And he says, I want to see you not just get a participation trophy. I want to see you get a <coughs> crown of life. Chapter 3, therefore, when we need, can endure it no longer. So he's thinking, God, these guys are going through incredible, intense persecution, and I'm not there with them. Are they staying true? Are they wavering? Are they falling back? I mean, this is hard. When we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer to the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you, we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, as you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I just had to know if you're standing. I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. I don't want you to be just go to heaven. I want you to go in glory. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that He may establish your heart's blameless and holiness before our Lord and God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. 
Okay, So you got these believers, massive affliction, waiting for the coming of Jesus, and he keeps talking about this coming of Jesus. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus, you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And this is the will of God. If you ever have uh, someone come and ask you, well, I just don't can't find God's will for my life. Turn to this verse. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. If you ever want to know what God's will for your life is, this is it. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening.